2023 is already well underway. The new Congress is settling in on Capitol Hill and addressing priorities for energy policy that will deliver reliable and affordable power for consumers. We also have a shift at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission with a new acting chairman and the departure of former chairman Richard Glick, leaving a vacancy at the commission. The fallout from Winter Storm Elliott over the holidays is fresh on everyone's minds, making it even more clear that we need to address the challenges to power system reliability. You're listening to Energy Solutions, a podcast from the Electric Power Supply Association, where we showcase the voices and stories behind America's changing electric grid. I'm your host, Todd Snitchler, EPSA's president and CEO. Our guest this episode is Jim Burke. Jim is the president and CEO of Vistra Corp, one of the largest competitive power companies in the United States. He's also chairman of EPSA's board of directors. So we wanted to kick off the year by talking with Jim about what's new at Vistra and priorities he has for EPSA and the competitive power sector in 2023 and beyond. Here's Jim. Jim, we're glad that you could join us today to talk a little bit about Vistra and about EPSA and what our priorities are as we look ahead to 2023. But for those that don't know, could you give us kind of elevator pitch or why is it important that we hear your perspectives? Yeah, sure, Todd. Uh, Vistra Corp is one of the largest competitive generators and competitive retail electric suppliers in the country. You know, we're publicly traded. We're a Fortune 500 company. We operate all the major competitive electric markets uh, covering 20 states in the District of Columbia. Our operations span from Maine to California and our headquarters are in Texas. You know, our fleet is primarily a highly efficient natural gas fleet, but we also have nuclear, coal, solar and battery facilities. And in fact, as we've been transforming our fleet. We've retired some coal plants. We've built some new solar and battery facilities. We happen to operate the largest battery facility in the world in California. We also operate the largest one in Texas. Um, And our retail business has been noteworthy because we can offer unique plans. Like one of our most popular plans is free nights and solar days. We also have plans such as Seasons Pass where we help customers manage through higher usage periods. These aren't offered in all markets across the country. So this has kind of been part of our heritage and our our purpose as that our people are focused on is, as we phrase it, is lighting up people's lives and powering a better way forward. And so we really want to be part of the changes that are occurring in our industry. Hopefully we can lead them. And that's a little bit about us. That's a lot, actually. And uh, I'm glad that you kind of talked about the breadth of where your exposure is and what you own, because I think that's really relevant when we talk about some of the issues as we look at what energy transformation looks like and how we're going to get there from here, and then really how we do it in a cost-effective fashion. So for those that maybe are a little less well-versed, not that anyone that would listen to our podcast isn't well-versed, of course, in energy, but for those that might not be, and you're sitting around the, the holiday dinner table how would you describe what a competitive power generator or independent power producer is? How are you different from what people might expect from a traditional utility? Yeah, you know, I, this just happened because we just got out of the holidays. So I had a couple <laughs> exactly. of cracks at this time. And I can't say that, you know, it's ever easy to describe because it's sort of behind the curtain stuff for a lot of people. But the way I describe it is, is a competitive power supplier is a business that generates electricity from a variety of sources. It could be gas, nuclear, coal, wind, sun, you know, you name it. But because we're competitive, our investors are willing to put their capital at risk without a guaranteed rate of return. 
And the hopes are is that if we operate well and we've made smart business decisions, then there may be a return on that investment. If we haven't, then the customer or the ratepayer is not at risk. The investor is. And I think that's a, a fundamental difference between the competitive markets and the regulated monopoly power supplier. So we have to innovate. We have to improve. We've got to manage our costs. We have to manage our risk, all in hopes of, high, of having a viable business. It's not an easy business, but it's what we're attracted to. It's what we think ultimately is the right answer for the electric market across the country. But we have to focus on reliability, affordability, and sustainability because our customers are demanding that of us. Yeah. And you raised some of the issues I'm sure we're going to break down a little bit in this conversation. But before we get there, uh, 2022 was a busy year. It was your first year at the helm of Vistra. You also got the uh, pleasure of being your first stint as the uh, and we've uh, developed a great working relationship, so I appreciate your leadership there. What stands out to you in both of those roles uh, as key issues that have either come up that have impacted members or that impact the broader competitive power market? You know, I'll probably go a little bit in chronology of the year, Todd, because I think we saw a couple things happen um, with, first of all, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Sure. We saw what happened with with energy prices and, and, and the effect that even domestic energy policy can have in how is, how is our country positioned? Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we obviously have tremendous resources as a country. We've got to make sure we're, we're taking full advantage of it. And that's both you know, on the upstream side and what we can do to, to, to source our own energy, but also the renewables investments that have been able through things like the Inflation Reduction Act So I think the Inflation Reduction Act following right there on the heels of what happened with the conflict, folks are looking at, is this a way to potentially diversify our sources of electricity? But at the same time, we finished the year with Elliott. Mm -hmm. And with Winter Storm Elliott, I think some of the things that folks have been concerned about started to show about reliability. And so when you put all of these together, you have to come away with this view that we've got to have a resilient and cost-effective source of energy. We need to take advantage of the policy angles and the Inflation Reduction Act to try to achieve it. But it isn't clear that those, that those near-term uh, uh, opportunities are going to solve the reliability challenge. And then right. Elliot, I think, exposed that there's an interdep- interdependency in our energy systems, particularly gas and power, yeah. that we have to resolve. And I think a lot of that was uh, to be packed into one year is a lot to digest, but I think our work's cut out for us as an industry going forward. Yeah, I think that's, that is a certainty. And I think you raised one of the issues that you know has been bubbling along under the surface for I don't know, better the better part of a decade uh, in gas electric coordination. Uh, as you see the evolving resource mix and a move to a lot more natural gas fired generation and to marry with renewables or non-dispatchable resources that that have to work together, you know, that certainly speaks to a number of operational challenges, but also some siting related issues because we can't expect to continue to operate an expanding natural gas generation fleet without some additional infrastructure. And I know that was a issue in the last Congress, and it is, I'm sure, certain to be in the next Congress. Those are some of the challenges that I think are out there. Do you, or how do you 
look at that because I know we've talked before and you've kind of explained about how natural gas is an enabler for greater renewable uh, deployment. And I, you've got a great way of explaining that. So kind of share your thinking about how we tackle this very complicated, multifaceted issue. Yeah, look, I, I have been in this industry for a uh, little over 20 years. Um, I, I think the evolution of the industry, if you look at it almost on a decade by decade basis, fuel sources have changed over time. For sure. Certainly, there was much more of an emphasis on coal. You know, decades ago, we see a lot of that retiring. Natural gas is a, you know, a 50% improvement right off the bat from a carbon intensity standpoint. So I yeah. think it's, it's a preferred fuel. But natural gas has a lot of uses beyond just the electric sector. So why we as an electric sector have a high dependence on natural gas to be a baseload resource and a flexible resource. I think that's one of the unique things that the natural gas fleet that we operate and many of the EPSA members operate. That is one of the unique things that can enable more renewables penetration is that flexibility. At the same time, it tends to be a, a, a supply that is a just-in-time supply because it is very difficult to store large quantities of yeah. natural gas at a plant like you could uranium for a nuclear plant or coal for a coal plant. So the coordination between these two industries, I think, is at an all-time high in terms of the need and the focus. And, and I think because of the amount of intermittent uh, resources being added to the grid, the only way the consumer can be comfortable that that transition is going to be a smooth one is if we can backstop it. Mm -hmm. And when I think about reliability, I think the customer likes the idea of a wind and solar as a preferred resource. But I've not had I've not had a customer tell me that they are prepared to go without power if the wind and the solar are not available. And natural gas is the backbone. Mm -hmm. of our electric grid and during storms like Elliott, what we experienced here in Texas, what California went through in the heat wave in September, natural gas will be 60, 70, 80% of what is operating at the very critical demand periods. Mm -hmm. So what, what I think, Todd, what we have to do as an industry is work very tightly with the natural gas industry, with the different regulatory bodies, with policymakers, on acknowledging this dependency. I think there is an element of the two are, are, are coordinated to the extent that the two want to transact and do business, right. but there actually is a long-term need for coordination and transparency, probably more than ever as the coal is continuing to come out of the stack. We are depending more and more on natural gas and we're fortunate as a country to have tremendous natural gas supplies. Right. We've got to make sure all that is deliverable, is transparent and available to the electric system so that we can deliver the reliability that the customer expects. You, you stressed reliability. And of course, that is one of EPSA's principal um, points of advocacy. So as reliability continues to rise and Elliot shines a, a very bright light onto that and perhaps brings policymakers focus onto reliability, as someone that's putting steel in the ground, you're making investments in new types of resources. What what concerns do you have, or what is needed to ensure that Vistra and other EPSA members can continue to deliver power uh, reliably and sure. at prices? Well, a couple of things. The Inflation Reduction Act, I think, offers incentives that have both short-term and long-term opportunity. 
In the short term, I think we're going to see more investment in wind, solar, and battery. But we haven't seen that that combination alone has been able to provide the long duration needs mm-hmm. during critical periods, particularly these storms. Yep. So I'm, I have a concern that the Inflation Reduction Act could actually spur in the near term more investment in things that might even be more difficult to work through from a reliability standpoint. And I put that on the time frame of, let's say, now to 2030, you know, the early 2030s, okay. where I think new nuclear carbon capture sequestration, some hydrogen-based storage solutions that we could look at might be able to play a role, but those are not right on our doorstep, Todd. So when we put new steel in the ground, one of the concerns I have is is that the wind and the solar have the ability to effectively receive two payments. Mm-hmm. They receive a payment from the grid, the electric grid, a competitive electric grid. They also effectively receive a payment from the, from the taxpayer. Right. And that enables those resources to bid at what is effectively a, a below market cost. And they can still be, quote, profitable yeah. as to their investors. Well, the gas units that are there to backstop those only receive one payment. It comes from the competitive electric market. Yet the customer is wholly dependent on the reliability of that system and the integrity of that system remaining in place. So the number one thing I'm worried about is as we continue to build out these carbon-free resources, they should be there if they're there. But they should also be there in a way that isn't putting at risk the resources that we need when they're not there. That's right. And I think, and we're seeing that happen, Todd, with some of the early retirements of the coal units. Mm-hmm. Um, I think coal will obviously continue to retire, but the pacing matters. That's and right. I think what we're seeing is that some of those are being economically challenged, but they're actually still needed in some cases for reliability. That could actually, that's happening and will continue to happen to the natural gas fleet mm-hmm. if we don't recognize that. So I think there is a reliability standard that could turn into an expectation of the electric grid where resources can be paid for bringing reliability, which includes it comes on when you want to turn it on because you turn it on because you need it. Right. And if we only have a grid based on when natural resources like the wind and the sun are available, that may not line up with when the customer needs it. So we got to recognize that. And if it's there, it should operate. It should go effectively first in line. Yep. But if it isn't there, we've got to have that backstop. And those are the, that's, Todd, is what, what we talk about. That's obviously what our industry is trying to bring as a level of awareness is that what's going on behind the curtain matters yeah. and that you need this backstop to be there. And there's a cost to reliability. And, you know, it's important for consumers to recognize that because, you know, if you undervalue or you undercompensate much needed resources, they have the incentive to actually exit and jeopardize reliability. So it's a market function to solve that equation, to be sure. And and Todd, I would add that when we talk about competitive markets, it isn't just about competing about who can bring electric supply to the grid the cheapest. It's also who brings it in an affordable way and in 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 an increasingly cleaner way but competition in competitive markets enables customers to see price signals yeah. 
and to actually respond. Now, we tend to see the response when the grid gets tight and prices go up. Industrial customers are usually some of the first to respond, commercial customers as well. But even residential customers that we have on plans that incentivize customers to use less during certain periods and more during other periods. The competitive market framework should provide these price signals to both suppliers and customers. That helps keep a grid in balance. If yep. you're act actually asking people to use less of something and the price never changes, we're not sending the right signal at critical periods of time. And, and so not every customer wants to respond to the price signals, but certainly some of them see it in their best interest mm -hmm. too because they can save money and use power when it's cheaper. That doesn't happen in most vertically integrated markets. That's a function of a competitive market that I think addresses not just the supply side, but the demand side. Yeah, it's actually a feature, not a bug of the competitive market. Because uh, it allows people to change their behavior as they think it's appropriate. And you know, and it kind of leads me into my next question for you, is energy prices are top of mind. As you know, yep. the, the conflict in Ukraine created some price shocks for natural gas and what have you. There's market volatility, as some would describe it, given inflation and other events. And some uh, have argued that competitive power markets drive up costs for consumers. In fact, a, a widely read national publication just ran a story uh, following that theme. And we, of course, have real issues with that. But I'm curious, you know, A, is that true? And B, how would you respond to that? Yeah, Todd, not, not only is it, is it not true, I, I think it goes against all logic that customers have in every other category. Mm -hmm. If you ask a customer, would they rather have one choice or more than one choice, people say more than one choice. Yep. In all the other categories we have, when more people are competing for your business, then that means that you as a customer have leverage and you have a chance to take the best option. We've seen in multiple markets across the country that you have seen the wholesale power costs drift down as more and more efficient assets have been built. Mm -hmm. And that has come through a competitive cycle of innovation. And you should see that the most efficient assets run first and the least efficient run last. They're That's only right. there when needed. That drives down power prices, right? Consumers having a choice of multiple providers that are, that are competing for their business drives down price. Where the story gets murky, and I think the reason why it, it's a, almost a game of timing of when you want to write stories. Is competitive markets respond to price signals generally more quickly than regulated markets do. So if you have a natural gas intense power generation fleet, you'll see the price of power rise more quickly. That sends signals too for consumers and for businesses to respond to. But when prices fall, gas prices fall like they have right now, you see natural gas prices come off yeah. really hard you're seeing the competitive price signals come down extremely quickly. And that's just part of a competitive market design. The other thing you see in these competitive markets is some of them have been the most prolific with the renewables build out. Yeah. And there's been additional transmission costs, which is all part of a regulated part of the market design. It, that goes up as you build out more and more of the renewables. So some of the cleanest electric grids are actually the competitive mm -hmm. electric grids. And there are two costs there. There's the resource cost itself, and then there's the transmission cost that go in. All of that gets 
jumbled into the storyline. And I think you saw that in the most recent article. Exactly. You know, that just came out. But I would say, again, common sense and I think empirical evidence shows the more people competing, the more people that want your business, the lower the prices go, the more the better service you get, the more options you have, the better features you have. Anybody that says that's not the case, I would say would would not be consistent with all the other categories that they buy every single day. And electricity is no different. Yeah. As you noted in some of your comments, Epson members have been at kind of the leading edge of bringing reliable generation to market with newer and cleaner technologies as it becomes commercially viable, which I think is an important thing to remember. And you've been an example of that uh, with critical gas resources, but also the battery resources that you talked about in California and Texas. And as you look over the horizon a bit, you know, how is Vistra looking to the future and how are you balancing that call for reduced emissions or lower carbon uh, resources with the need for reliable generation? Todd, it is a great question. You know, if you look at what we have done and said publicly, you know, we have our own reduction goal for greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. a 60% reduction goal. Uh, from 2010 to 2030, we're already three quarters of the way there. Um, so that has been largely uh, achieved through retirement of older coal units. Mm-hmm. But we also know that these the, the grid needs additional supply. So we have been investing in solar and battery. As noted earlier, I think through my comments, it, they're not one-for-one replacements. Yeah. And I think the question then becomes, if you take a coal unit off or a gas unit off, just how much wind, solar and battery is needed to probabilistically replace the output of the Mm -hmm. coal and the gas plant. And depending on the different studies you look at, you know, it can be a multiple of four to one, five to one kind of nameplate comparisons. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the capital required to transform the electric grid in the United States, there are estimates that we may need upwards of a trillion dollars a year invested in generation and transmission in order to have the reliability and the sustainability aspects people are looking for. Well, I don't know how you attract a trillion dollars yeah. to be invested unless there's a potential for a return and that people feel like it's worth investing in that structure. And so that's where our investors are asking us, which mm-hmm. is, are we able to see an investment return in your solar and battery investments? What if you were to build a new gas plant? Is the market accepting of that? Is the investing public accepting right. of that? Is society accepting of that? And I think we need to get comfortable as as an industry that we need all forms of generation, that this is not an either or. I think the minute we go down to an either or, we create a vulnerability and a resiliency issue for our own our own economy. I think we should we should be open minded. And if we can put carbon capture, sequestration and other elements to this to work. Maybe we can have the resiliency of the grid through some of the current fossil resources or new fossil resources with some of the sustainability aspects people are looking for. So I think it's an evolution, Todd. I think we've got to be very thoughtful about how rapidly 
we go into this transformation because we do not want to jeopardize reliability, especially, as you said, potentially any other economic impacts as a result of trying to achieve simply the sustainability objective and losing sight of the reliability objective. Yeah. You, you talked about competition and, you know, maybe to ask the direct question, what's needed to drive that competitive investment in those new and innovative um, technologies? Yeah. So, so Todd, in order to see the competitive market deliver on, on its full promise and then have the investment dollars be attracted to it, I think it takes a stable regulatory framework. Investors are not seeking in our company and a lot of the EPSA members, they're not seeking guaranteed rates of return. Mm-hmm. They're seeking a common set of market rules that provide a framework to say, okay, I know the rules under which I'm investing. Now we need to operate extremely well mm-hmm. and we have a chance to get a return. So when you look at some of the markets that we operate in, there are always changes to rules. They might be caps being put in on certain bids. It might be how the capacity market looks at renewables versus Mm -hmm. some of the dispatchable. It could be how transmission decisions are being made and who bears the cost of those. I think there needs to be some stability in this framework because it feels like year to year, EPSA, you and your organization are always looking at uh, what tweak here or a tweak there that other stakeholders are trying to make that creates a shifting landscape that scares off investment. And, and, and so I think that's one of the most important things that each of these markets that are, that are looking to attract capital need to be looking at it from the standpoint that these are 20, 30, 40 year life assets. That's right. And we're not simply optimizing what's on the ground today. A lot of what's on the ground today will retire and we've got to attract new. That's this trillion dollar number That's right. that I was mentioning. And so the only way you can attract capital is if people think they have some sense of what the rules of the game are. And I think that is not well understood because I think people think that we're only talking about the assets that are here and now and how are they going to operate. Yeah. When you fast forward 2030, 2040, 2050, we're going to have to attract so much new capital because electrification, it's not just about today's demand levels. It's how the decarbonization of the whole U.S. economy is looking to unfold. And it's about more electricity being consumed, which is going to come with a cleaner overall environmental footprint for the country. So we've got to attract more capital to meet higher demand levels. So I think that stability, Todd, is what has most investors nervous is because the vertically integrated model appears more stable to them. As a, and so you see that the value placed on those companies is quite high. Sure. When you come into a, a competitive company situation like ours, the investors are saying, I need a potential of a higher return because of the unpredictability of yep. the market design. Yep. If we can actually bring the predictability of the market rules to a level of clarity, the required return will come down. Yep. And then we can attract cheaper capital 
build more assets. But those two have a direct relationship, Todd, and I think we've got to recognize that as we try to attract capital. Yeah, given the changes that the markets have had over the last several years, I think I would take a tweak over a sometimes very significant oh. alteration of the market. <laughs> Your point's a fair one. You talk about innovation, and at the end of the year last year, there was some significant news about uh, fusion as a potential energy source. That I think most folks understand that that's still decades away, but how do you see that as a potential future item? Is that the kind of R&D that, you know, is, you know, the, where we should be investing or things that you look at, or do you take kind of the, that's really nice, but we're still so far away that it's an, an item that we'll keep on the back burner while we focus on these short and medium term goals? Yeah, you know, Todd, I think it's a great example of when the government decides that there is some really promising technologies that we could study like fusion and with federal support real progress has been made. I think that's a a very appropriate and important part of how the country can be a leader in these technologies that can help us transform our whole energy system. Companies like ours are generally about commercializing technologies, right? That is the basis of what we do. So yes, fusion is you know, by any, almost anybody's view decades away, I think new nuclear around the small modular reactors, advanced reactors, there's eight to 10 pilots going right now, realistically. And of course that's fission, not fusion, but that's realistically something that maybe in the early 2030s could be an opportunity for a company like ours. But I think the role of government in that early stage development makes a lot of sense. I think there's a question is to once you have mature technologies like we have on some of the renewable technologies, should they have the same federal support and backing? Because I'd rather see the marketplace sort those out because they're, they're commercially viable technologies. Right. Let's let them compete. And if we have to put a price on carbon somewhere, somehow, let's do that because that's something that would advantage one technology over the other. But we're in this point now where we've got, as I mentioned, two payment streams coming on some mature technologies and one payment stream coming for other mature technologies. That does not happen in most other large scale industries. It's not happening, generally speaking, when you go to the grocery store. It's not happening to the same extent in your telecom and your wireless experience. But in energy right now, that's become our national policy. We need to recognize that, that I think that new technologies need that federal support to get off the ground. And I think the reason the labs and the DOE are there make a lot of sense. Once we get to these mature technologies, I think we've got to look at how do they stand on their own and compete. Right. At some point, the spigot probably needs to be turned off. And if you're really the least cost resource, you're going to get caught. You're going to run. You're going to earn the revenue you need. And that's how it should function. So, That's right. And, and if you're the most reliable resource, you should be rewarded for that. Exactly and I think right. the customer has to define reliability, Todd. I think that's the thing that we have to keep in mind is that when the customer needs it, they need it. Yeah. They, they don't want to wait on it. They don't want to go without. And I think starting with that customer focused view, you can measure the technologies and reward them accordingly. 
That's right. As I like to use to, well, I used to say, I don't say it as often anymore, but customers really wanted three things. They want their lights on, their beer cold and their water warm. Uh, and that hasn't really changed. Uh, and so I think that's true. So, you know, I want to ask a little uh, question that maybe seems like it's a one-off, but it's really one of the important issues that we're facing in light of global events and things that we're seeing here in the U.S. And that's talking about cyber and physical security, of course. Yep. And EPSA participates as the uh, competitive power generation sectors uh, representative on the electricity uh, sector coordinating council. I, there's so many acronyms, it's hard to keep them all straight, but the ESCC. And we sit at that table to represent our industry's uh, interests and to partner with our government entities. Talk a little bit, if you would, uh, both about the importance of our engagement with our government partners, but also how you are as a asset owner looking at physical and cyber related security. Because at its core, that's a reliability function. Because if you have a physical or a cyber incident, you can't operate. And that means we've got a reliability issue. And Todd, I think this is on the minds of leadership teams of regulated and competitive companies. And I know it's certainly on the minds of the boards of directors, you know, at our at various companies, including ours. Mm -hmm. um, it is ultimately a reliability concern, right? Everybody is looking at what is the most vulnerable part of the system. And I think cyber attacks got a lot of attention over the last couple of years, not just in our industry, but others, some of them, as you know, pipeline related. We've seen more recently physical attacks uh, at the substation level. It is going to be extremely difficult for the system to, to harden each and every asset uh, across an entire network of assets. Mm -hmm. However, there's a role that each still has to play to harden those assets. And then we have to have the resilience to not be single asset dependent. And I think that is where the role that NERC has been elevating this topic, as you know, and we have standards that we have to comply with, that the industry complies with. And I think at the end of the day, um, we cannot, if you look at it purely from a competitive market standpoint, we are wholly dependent on being reliable. That's we right. effectively only are compensated if we're performing. That's there right. is no regulatory backstop for our model. So I would argue... This is as much a priority for our businesses as any in the system, because our entire revenue model depends on it. So uh, there's been a lot of great sharing across the industry when these events occur. What are the lessons learned? Um, we've had great sharing with FERC and others around some of the cyber uh, issues that the industry has faced. And this is a real investment that our members are committed to to address because it ultimately does turn into a reliability and an economic risk for the country and, and trust and credibility of our customer base. And yep. so um, this is a, a key aspect. It's one we're highly focused on. I can tell you anywhere from a nuclear plant to a transformer at a, at a solar farm, this is a topic of conversation for us. You've been very generous with your time, Jim. So I'm going to just close with a couple of quick questions for you. <laughs> you can determine how detailed you want to be in your answers, but we're seating a new Congress and we're going to be uh, operating in a little different political environment here in Washington with a divided government. If you were uh, a new member of Congress, what would you be focused on or what would you advise new members of Congress to be focused on with regard to the energy space? Yeah, I think reliability is the key topic. And, and Todd, I give, I give you and EPSA credit for 
getting out on this message where we had smaller reliability concerns that have occurred over the last several years. And it's been a topic where many times I think it's been just taken for granted because there's been enough excess capacity on the grid as the new stuff has come on, the old stuff was still on. Yep. Now we're seeing that enough old is coming off the grid and the new that's coming on doesn't have all the same characteristics as the old that's coming off. Yep. And I think at the end of the day, I have seen elected officials take a real interest in this topic, regardless of their political affiliation. And I think it's a unifying mm-hmm. concern. Um, and I think it's a significant concern that whether it's a regulated marketplace or a competitive, each has had struggles as recently as Elliot. Yep. And it doesn't extend just to the power system, but also the gas system. And so I, I would ask enough questions if I were be, you know, a new member of Congress or I have a chance to influence the discussion is dig deep on to get the basic understanding because it is a complex topic and I do not want to oversimplify the topic. It takes tenacity. It takes kind of a, a, you know, an intellectual curiosity to dig into it. There are a lot of great experts that can assist. Um, but it's it it is the key, I think, to getting to the right policy decisions that we balance this reliability with the affordability and sustainability objectives. But we've got time here, I think, with the changes being made, new members in Congress and new leadership to have a fresh discussion on this. And I know EPSA and its members are willing to roll up its sleeves. And talk about, you know, what ideas we have that can help improve the reliability of the system. But each of us has a role to play, Todd. I don't think it's about looking elsewhere. I think we have to look at ourselves and what we can do as individual members, but also what we can do collectively. And and, and we're prepared to to engage at every level to do that. It's that it's that important. Yeah. And I echo your sentiment that this is a nonpartisan issue. Energy is important to every American and we ought to all care about its reliability and how we achieve that in a way that people can afford it. So with that, I'll close with one last question, Jim, and I'll ask what's on tap in Vistra's uh, near-term future that you're excited about? Is there a new project you want to announce on our podcast or are there just things underway that uh, are things that you uh, think are are important that uh, you'd like to highlight as you look at what you have in store for 2023? Yeah, look, as a as a publicly traded company, I don't know if this podcast- <laughs> There'll be no breaking news on this podcast. <laughs> as, as Reg FD compliant. But look, I would say uh, what we're excited about, Todd, is that is that our business has expanded considerably Um, over the last several years. And we see an integration of our business with the entire trend in the industry. And our people are excited about it. I mean, when I told you we have retirement of coal units, one just retired the first of this year. Okay. It's, it's very difficult to go through those decisions and still have the impacts, you know, that it's going to have on our people at the same time, we're nearly doubling the size of the battery out in California. I told you is already the world's largest. Right. And we've got plans to be doing additional investments across our system. And so we're excited about that transformation. And, and it, but it doesn't, it comes with the seriousness that we are a 24 seven essential service. 
we pride ourselves in that. And I think if this is the, you know, the kind of business with the purpose I mentioned at the beginning, that's exciting, you know, for people, you know, this is a great industry, but it has real meaning. And yeah. that's what I think we're excited about, Todd. But we have a big lift ahead of us on these topics that we've covered here in the Indeed. podcast. And our people are our people are excited about it. Don't be surprised if there aren't some announcements from Vistra along along the way during the year. Sure. But uh, we're excited about about this topic. That this topic is actually getting the attention that I think it deserves, and uh, we're excited about working through the solutions. Great. Well, thank you, Jim. We appreciate your time and uh, know that uh, this conversation is an important one and one that we will continue to drill down on over the course of the year. So thanks again for joining us. I'd appreciate appreciate what you and your organization are doing. It's vitally important. There's no shortage of work to do. Stay tuned for how there's no shortage of work addressing the issues. Stay tuned for how EPSA and others are addressing the issues. And if you're in DC in March, join us to hear representatives. And if you're in DC in March, and our member companies, innovators, and other energy experts, at our second annual competitive power summit, open on our website. Thanks for listening to EnergySolutions.org. If you like this, thanks for listening to Energy Solutions. Please share it on social media. If you like this episode, please share it on social media. You can also connect with us on Twitter at EPSA. You can also connect with us on Twitter. Twitter at and subscribe, news, follow, and leave a rating or comment and subscribe, on Spotify, follow, Pandora, leave a rating Google, or comment or wherever you listen Spotify, to podcasts. Pandora, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Energy Solutions is brought to you by the Electric Power Energy Supply Solutions is brought to you by the Electric EPSA Power represents Supply America's competitive power supplies, which, represents which bring about 150,000 megawatts, which bring about 150,000 megawatts of power generation resources. States. To customers discover the power of competition at www.epsa.org.